The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and open them to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And I'd like to read this very comforting text that Jesus spoke to his disciples just before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and just before he was betrayed by Judas and went to the cross. Jesus said to the eleven, John chapter 14, verse number 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This is truly a comforting text. Christians have used this passage as a touchstone for their faith through many centuries of persecution. This is a promise that Jesus gave that taught his people not to grasp hold of the things that we have in this life, but we are to remain faithful to Christ. We're not to give up our faith because what is coming is far more than all the trouble that we'll experience. Jesus promised we will have eternal life in the paradise of God. Now, the 11 disciples that Jesus spoke these precious words to were sorrowful. They were sorrowful because of what Jesus had told them earlier in the evening. They had observed the Passover meal in which Jesus showed them that that ancient meal was a picture of his impending death, And then he gave them a new supper. Uh, He gave them the Lord's Supper that was to be observed until he returns. As we read in Scripture that it is to be a memorial of Christ's death until he comes again. And in that supper, Christ gave a visual demonstration of what was about to happen. He broke bread, which showed that his body was about to be beaten, that he would be flogged and his flesh torn and he, would, he was struck so many times that he was unrecognizable. He would be stripped of all of his clothing and then nailed, his hands and his feet nailed to a cross. And then in the supper, he took the cup and he said, this, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. And so he was about to pour out his blood for the life of his people. And all of that, all of these things that Jesus showed and what he told them were very troublesome to them. They were very gruesome. He said that he was going to be betrayed by one of them. And they each asked each other and looked at each other, am I going to be the one? And asked Jesus, am I going to be the one who would do this terrible thing? And the prospects of that awful death that Christ would die caused fear in them. And they were troubled because... They felt that they would suffer a similar death because Jesus had already told them in his time of ministry that they would be brought before kings and governors and they would have to suffer for his sake. And so the Passover meal that they took up was about him. He is the Lamb of God who gave his life and he had the power 
or he had to leave them, I should say. He was going to die. He had to leave them and go away. And with their poor understanding of what all of that meant, that caused them to have this fear and sorrow in their hearts. All that they had hoped for in the three years of ministry following Jesus around, to them seemed lost. Hope of a kingdom that would come was lost to them because they couldn't see how it could happen if he should die. But then he spoke the comforting words of this text. I'm going away, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm not going to stay away. I'll come back, I'll get you, and I'll take you home to be with me, that where I am, there you will be. I promise that I will do it, so don't be sorrowful and afraid. Well, Jesus was going away because his death was for a better purpose. It was needful for him to go away. All the work that was given for him to do would not be fully accomplished until he died. His, his work was to, to save them from death. And if he didn't die, then he couldn't arise from the dead to conquer death and then to fulfill the, the, the promise of righteousness. Fulfilling all righteousness, that's the goal. And that guaranteed them fulfilling that righteousness, dying on the cross and living that perfect life that he lived, guaranteed them that they would live also eternally in this place that God prepares where we glorify him forever. And that's the main point that I want you to get of all these sermons that I'm going to preach to you about heaven, that heaven is a place where we glorify God. And that, that is the main purpose of us being there. All that God does in the salvation of his people is for his glory. And he brings us home to heaven for this wonderful purpose that we will glorify him forever. Now, as you know, we've, we've just finished up 13 weeks of talking about the devil. We learned about who he is and what he does and where he's going. And 13 weeks, that is a long time to talk about such a depressing subject. Uh, it's depressing, but I don't want you to be too depressed by what we've said there because even those sermons were about the glory of God. And you wonder, well, how's that about the glory of God? Well, it's for the glory of God and seeing what God does in overthrowing the great enemy of our souls. We glorify Him because He saves us from the hell that we so richly deserve. Christ turns away the wrath of God's justice and by His grace we're made perfect and we're whole and made right to receive that home that He has prepared in heaven. So even when we have to talk about the bad things that we find in the Word of God, we're always going to find God's glory shines through. So we finished that long, long study, and I thought that it would be good for us to take a look at the other side. And now we can lift our spirits in another way to see this eternal reward that God has promised for believers in Christ. And surely talk of, heavens ought to lift, talk of heaven ought to lift our spirits. It ought to really do something to us. And that's what Jesus wanted to do to the disciples. He saw how heavy that their hearts were, how sorrowful that they were. And so he knew what they needed. And what he wanted to do was to reassure them with this great promise that everything that they would go through would be worth it because he was going away to prepare a place for them. And this is so good. I mean, it's so good to know that you have something to look forward to, that the trials of life are going to end in the glories of heaven. It doesn't matter how many things that you have to go through, no matter how hard that your life might be, no matter what kinds of things that you face, when you get to heaven, it repays you a billion times over the things that you've experienced in this life. We just do not understand all the things that God has promised for those that believe. 
Now, we're going to take a, a, a few weeks to see what the Bible says about heaven. And I want you to pay attention to that statement. We're going to look at what the Bible says about heaven. Now, I'm sure that you've noticed that, that heaven is a hot topic. Books that talk about heaven frequently top the bestseller list. Even the secular market sometimes, uh, books about heaven can overtake that and they become bestsellers. Many wonderful claims are made about heaven. Um, one genre of these books that garners so much attention is the near-death experiences where people say that they've died and they've gone to heaven and they come back to tell us what heaven is like. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that on a, at a later time. But I just want you to understand right now and to know that heaven interests people. People are looking for information about heaven. And unfortunately, most of the information that they get is wrong. And it's not strange that people would be wrong about heaven because people have always been mostly wrong about it. And the reason that they are is because the only place that you can find out about heaven is in the Bible. There isn't any other source of information about it. Just like hell, there's no information about hell or heaven found any place but in the Bible. No reliable information is found anywhere but there. And so if your idea comes from some other place than the Bible, and you're depending on what somebody else says about it, you're going to be wrong. Because the Bible is the only place that we can find out. And this great interest that people have in heaven is not peculiar to the 21st century. It's not peculiar to people today who like to read all of these books about people dying and going to heaven. No, this has been a, this has been a, a thing since the very beginning. There's an interesting book, in, uh, a verse rather, in Ecclesiastes that says, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from beginning to end. He hath set the world in their heart. And that word world, it's translated from a word that means eternity. God has set eternity in our heart. So let, let's make that the first point today, that heaven is in the heart. Heaven is a part of our psychological makeup. Now, we shouldn't wonder why people everywhere in all times have had an interest in heaven. All cultures in human history have had a theology of heaven. You see, God has put his existence in our heart, and with that comes the innate knowledge that there is something that happens after death. Something is there. Something has always been there. Men have always understood that, so that no matter what culture that you go, there's always, where you go, there's always a theology of heaven there that, that is a prominent part of their belief system. And there's only one way that we can explain that, why cultures all over the world have this same thought that there is a place after this life, the only reason that it can be there is because there is a Creator God who has put that into our heart. That He put His own existence in our heart and then that there is something that's going to happen after we leave this life. Now the biblical record of Adam and Abel, of Cain going on to Enoch, then to Noah, and then to that evil person Nimrod. It's, it's all the same throughout the, the hi human history, always has been. There's, there's this consistency of belief in God and, and life after death. There's something that is beyond the grave, and that is never a question in human history. Now, th this interesting comment is found in the book of Job. Job lived uh, about four to... 4,000 to 4,500 years ago, probably about the time of Abraham. And Job said, One dieth in his full strength, 
being wholly at ease and quiet. His breasts are full of milk, and his bones are moistened with marrow. And another dieth in the bitterness of his soul, and never eateth with pleasure. They shall lie down alike in the dust, and worms shall cover them. Now obviously, Job knew the common experience of all men, that all are going to die. But then we look at the preciseness of his post-life theology. He knew worms will destroy the bodies of the dead, but then he also said this, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. And so Job knew that he would die, but he knew that's not the end of it because he was a righteous person and he would see God. Abraham also had the same hope in God. In Hebrews, the writer explains, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then the author went on in that 11th chapter to talk about the other patriarchs. And there he says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. So can you see that remarkable testimony of what God has put into our heart? The writer of Hebrews talks about those who are people of faith, and they believe that this world is not their home. But this world is just a temporary place. They were strangers in this world. They're just passing through, and their destination is another country, another place that they're going, a city, the Word of God says, that is built by God. Well, there's some interesting things that people believe about heaven, what it's like, and how to get there. Now, as we've noted, heaven is in the heart, and so we are occupied with thoughts about heaven. In the messages I preached on hell, I made the comment that people instinctively know that uh, a bad life is going to result in punishment in the afterlife. And so what they do is they try to mitigate that punishment somewhat by what they do here or get rid of it altogether. And whatever they think it to be or whatever they call it, what they want to do is to avoid hell at all cost. And so all cultures have that theology too. They have some way they can, that they can avoid suffering in the afterlife. Well, the, the opposite of that means that they're also looking for a way to be assured of heaven. And if they're wrong about the way to avoid hell, then they're going to be equally wrong about the way that they're going to reach heaven. And so it's a problem either way that you go. So what do people know instinctively about it? Well, they do know there's another world. They know there's more than, what just, than just what's around us. They know there is another consciousness. This is not the only consciousness there is. Death doesn't end at all, that there is something that comes after death. And they know this because there is that hope of heaven in their heart. Now, I think it's interesting that when we read in, in Genesis and Exodus, we find there that the Jews in Egypt end up serving Pharaoh. And you remember they came into Egypt 
uh, when Joseph was governor. Joseph had been elevated to a position of governor over the land, and so he brought his family, the Jews, into Egypt, and they lived in Egypt as shepherds in the land of Goshen. But over the years, about 400 years or so, Israel began to, to grow until they finally outnumbered the Egyptians. And so we find them in the book of Exodus doing something for Pharaoh. They were actually help, helping Pharaoh to realize his dreams about heaven. And he said, well, how did they do that? Well, the, the, the story that we read in Exodus was at the heyday of the Egyptian civilization. This was at a time when they were a world power, and what they were doing was building these huge monuments to their greatness. Pyramids were built, and those pyramids were the tombs of the pharaohs. And in those pyramids, in those tombs, were placed the embalmed bodies of the pharaohs. And the Egyptians were just masters at that. Uh, you read the stories, you see National Geographic. You know how that they, they were able to mummify bodies, and you can even look at one of those today and see the features of a person. Why did they do all of these things? Well, one of the things that they did was they placed maps into the tombs of the pharaohs because they believed that there's a journey in the afterlife, and they needed the map to show them how to get to the place where they thought that they would go. Here's another interesting thing about beliefs uh, in this country. Native Americans buried their dead with bows and arrows. And they did that so that they would have something to hunt with when they reached the other world. Now, many of them were non-agrarian people, and so they depended upon fresh meat for survival, both food and clothing. And so their idea of heaven was a place where there would be plenty of game. And they could hunt, and they could not have all the difficulties, the harsh difficulties of finding enough food to, to live on. And so heaven to them was just a better place than this earth, a glorified earth, you might say, where they could just have a different kind of enjoyment there. It's just a better earth. And that's really a common attitude about heaven. This is the way that many people think about it, that heaven is a better version of earth. Heaven is a place where all the things that we like to do here can be done in more spectacular ways. That includes, for some people, even enhancement of purient, sinful desires. Some, like the Muslims, think, well, heaven's is a heaven is a place where you can have 40 virgins. Some, like the Mormons, think that you'll get to heaven and you can have all the sex that you want. You'll have plenty of wives. You'll be able to populate your own planet in which you will be its god. People also put favorite things in caskets of those that die with the idea that those things will be useful when they reach heaven. So there's all kinds of theories about heaven, what heaven will be because heaven is in our heart and so our imaginations are filled with thoughts about heaven. There are stories that are told at funerals about heaven. I need to go through just a moment of confession with you if you'll... Let me do that. A long time ago, I fell prey to this kind of thinking. When I was a little bit greener about such things, I, I preached a funeral of a, of a man, a Christian man, who was a collector of tropical fish. And he loved his aquarium. And so to sort of help the family out and make them feel better, I said, well, this good Christian man is in heaven enjoying his beautiful fish tank. Well, you know me better than that. I mean, you, you think that you do, that you can't imagine that I was once that silly. But that, that's a very common thing. This is what we do. We want heaven to be a better version of earth 
just all the things that we like to do here. Now, I'm sorry that I said that before, but I'm also aware of this, that some of the things that we talk about like that aren't very far from the truth. And that's because the Bible says that when we get to heaven, that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And who's to say that the new earth that God creates doesn't contain some of the very, very good things that we have here, and God has just made them perfect for us to enjoy. Later on, we're going to discuss that. What is the new earth like? What does the Bible say about that? So how far off would we be to talk about the good things that God may have in this, on this new earth? But I, I don't really want to push that thought too far because I'm not going to say that in heaven there is a golf course where every, uh, every drive off of a 450-yard par 5 is a hole-in-one. And I'm not going to tell you that in heaven they play baseball and every hit is a home run. Or there's football. Anybody ever heard of football? That there's football where every pass is a touchdown? Now we know if Colin Kaepernick gets to heaven, that's not going to be true. So we're not going to rely on that. But the point that I do want to make here is that God has put heaven in the heart. We know that instinctively, and to deny that is to deny what we are. Jesus talked about heaven to give them hope. And the truth about heaven will give you real, a real hope that you can rely on. Sure, Jesus was going away, but the departure was going to be short. Compared to the time of eternity, that, that time that he's gone away is short, and he's coming back to receive us to himself. He is preparing a place for us. Now, if you look back at John 14 again, the quotation that we have here in the King James is familiar to us. In verse number 2 it says, In my Father's house are many mansions. Secondly today, heaven is a home. In my Father's house are many mansions. What does that mean? Well, there's a song that we sing about every 11 weeks that says, I've got a mansion over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. I don't want to make a big point about this because we really like the idea of living in a mansion. I think the only person that doesn't want to live in a mansion is my wife. I mean, to her, living in a mansion represents too much cleaning. So if you tell her you're going to live in a mansion, the only thing that she thinks about, who's going to clean the place up? That, that's what she thinks about. You know, I can tell you it's not going to be me. Uh, I'm tired of doing dishes and running the vacuum cleaner, and so I'm not going to do women's work when I get to heaven. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to rely on what the Bible says. Angels are ministering spirits, so they can do all the cleanup. But anyway, are there many mansions in heaven? You know, I remember when I was young, there was a song that said, just give me a little cabin over in the corner of glory land. The idea behind that song is just let me in. Let me, let me get in some way. I'll be content if you just let me into heaven and I, I'm content to live in a holler somewhere up on the backside there where nobody can find me, where Google Maps doesn't even know where I am. I, I'm content to do that. Folks, that's not what Jesus promised for us. He didn't say I'm going away to heaven to prepare Section 8 housing. And he didn't say, I, I'm going away to heaven to prepare a tenderloin district for all those that you just barely get in. No, he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. That's a little bit perplexing to us. How do you have a house and many mansions? 
Well, perhaps we can solve some of the difficulty by seeing that the scriptures give different descriptions about heaven. A moment ago, we were talking about Abraham, and there it said that Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. And so sometimes heaven is referred to as a city. And we'll talk about that description of heaven in one of the later sermons. In the same chapter, it says that heaven is a country. Verse 16 of Hebrews 11 says that those who died in faith were seeking a better country. And so heaven is a country. What else? Well, surely you can't miss this one, that heaven is a kingdom. 32 times in the scripture it says the kingdom of heaven. In the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The cha- uh, seventh chapter, verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. In the 8th chapter, in verse 11, I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And on and on it goes. And then listen to this statement and how exciting it must have been to the person who heard this. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. To the thief on the cross, Jesus said, Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. So heaven is also paradise. Can you imagine what that meant to that poor suffering thief whose life was anything but paradise? Even the vilest offender who believes in Jesus Christ has a place in heaven. It's paradise. Revelation 2.7 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Heaven is paradise. Isn't that great? That the beauty of heaven is so spectacular that it's called paradise. You know, I've been to a few places on earth that people called paradise. I've been to Hawaii for a couple of times. Been to, been to the Caribbean with its crystal clear waters. The last time that I was in Hawaii, uh, after four days, I was done. Uh, I was finished with Hawaii because, you know, I've got to be in a place where, where uh, you can get up to 90 miles an hour, run through the gears without running over a camera-carrying tourist. I, I would go stark raving mad if I had to live in Hawaii. But heaven is not an island. Heaven is a vast country. It's a whole expansive kingdom that spans the entire universe. And all of it's filled with God's glory. It is paradise. So it's a a city, it is a country, it's a kingdom, and it's paradise. But let's look at John 14 again, because I think here is the most compelling description that we have of heaven, that heaven is a home in my Father's house. You know, I hope that you were raised in a good home. Uh, I hope that you have a father and a mother or had a father and a mother that loved you. Jorge mentioned a few weeks ago uh, that many men in the prison where he went to visit came from broken homes. They couldn't relate to this. They, They couldn't think about having a father, think about having a good home life. And so when you speak of things like that, often we talk to people that have just can't relate to it. They didn't experience that, so they don't know about home. They don't know about having a good father. 
And that's, that, that's very sad. And I would say to you, if you do anything with your life, make sure that you do this. Trust the Lord as your Savior, and then provide your children with a good home. Provide them with a home where they can hear about Jesus. Teach, him the, teach them the ways of Christ. Give them something that they can look back at, that they can have joy with, and they can cherish until the day that they die. Give your children a good home. So home, thoughts of home, those ought to be good thoughts. This is kind of touching, I think, at least it was for my wife and I. As you know, our, our son Nathan was a, a late bloomer. He was home for a long, long time. He got through high school, and he was home. And he got through college, and he was home. And then he got a job, and he was home. And then he got another job, and he was home. And you know, he, he was home for a long, long time. Now, I, I didn't really, really mind that so much. I mean, if, if, I, if I could afford it, uh, I would keep all of my children at home. I, I just want to bring all of them home, bring all my ga- grandchildren home. Of course, that's if angels would take care of them and clean up after them. That, that would be a requirement. So Nathan got through all of his, his schooling, and um, he got a job, but he was still at home. And it was almost like he'd grown into the work, woodwork. But then one day, he decided that he was going to join the Navy. And I can remember that uh, morning, very early in the morning, when he was to go away to basic training, we got in the car, and I took him uh, to the recruiting station, and uh, he took off to, to go into the Navy. Well, Pam decided that she would get busy making his bedroom into a normal spare bedroom. Her plan was that she would change everything around and just take his stuff out because he wasn't going to need it anymore. He's in the Navy. Well, he got wind of that plan, and he was very upset about that. And he said, you don't understand it. You don't understand this. That room is my only home. Can you imagine what that did to his mother's heart? I'll tell you what it did. She got busy putting everything back. (laughs) She put everything back. And then when he comes home, he's comfortable. Because he goes to that room that's his home. That's home to him. Now, do you understand that this is what God promised to us? We're going home. Jesus went away to prepare a place for us, and when we get there, it will be home. It's going to be the place where where we're welcome. It's a place that is inviting to us. We swing open the door when we get there, and we feel the warmth of home. You see, we are. We are as Christians. We're just strangers that are passing through this life. This world is not our home. God has given us heaven, and that means as long as we're here, We're away. We're not home. Can you understand why the Apostle Paul said to depart with Christ is far better? Why? Because Jesus is there. And heaven is where he is. Heaven is home. When I go back to Kentucky, I always say, I'm going home. When when I talk to my wife about it, when she feels well enough, I, I say something like, let's go home in June. And she understands what I mean by that. When I talk to my mother, my mother always asks this question, when are you coming home? And you know, it's actually been a long, long time since my parents lived in any of the houses that we lived in when I grew up. When I, grew up. I mean, my dad's been gone for 18 years now. Now my mother is in an assisted living facility with Alzheimer's. Her assisted living facility is not my home. 
So in a sense, home is no longer a physical location for me. It, nothing else is home. The assisted living facility is not home to me, but home is where my mother is. And that's the same sense that we have of heaven. All the other stuff is there for sure. I mean, heaven is as real as this room that we're in right now. But the main thing about heaven is that's where the Father is. Heaven is our home because that's where the Father is. God is there. That's where He lives. And that makes it better than anything that we can imagine that heaven will be. I know that people like to focus on the good things that are in heaven. We'll have many, many things in heaven. There's nothing wrong with that because... God lets us know there is something to look forward to in that area. He must have wanted us to know something about that because he talked some about it. But if you look at what the Bible has to say about heaven, most of the comments, do you know what stands out the most? And what is it that the disciples wanted the most? Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Paul said, I want to depart to be with Christ. He didn't say, I want to depart and get a recliner and sit on a cloud and live it up. No, he said, I want to be with Christ. I I depart to be with him. We're going home to see the Father. And when we talk about the Father, you know, this is really not my purpose today to give you an exposition of the Trinity and talk to you about the Father, but I think I do have to mention him some. Um, understand that we do appreciate Christ and nothing that we say about the Father diminishes Christ at all because he said, I and the Father are one. But we talk about, and Jesus talked about, going home to see the Father. And he emphasized that it is the Father's house, that the Father is the one who's the provider, the Father is the head, the Father is the one who gives life, and the Father is the one who sustains life. My own father was a great provider for me. And... uh, I think about him all of the time, and I, I, he gave me a perspective on what the Heavenly Father is. Well, the Heavenly Father is someone who loves me more than anyone could. He has a house where he lives, and he's waiting for me to come home, and he wants me to come home to be with him. Now, perhaps you don't hear me speak so much about this side of God. I mean, you listen to my preaching, you know I'm usually on the other side, and I'm talking about the wrath of God, and I'm talking about how you need to be saved and come to, come to Christ so you can escape the wrath of God. But I don't want you to miss this either. You need to see this side of God because He is a loving, benevolent, heavenly Father, a Father who takes care of us. He loves His children, and He is at home. And what he wants to do is to gather all of his children home to him. He wants his family with him. He has a house. And this is the most important thing. He is there where the Father is, is home. Now let me back up just a minute to talk about the word mansion in verse number 2. With all due respect to the translators, and I do respect the translation, I believe that there's a different thought here than what might be put into our mind, that heaven is a place that's filled with subdivisions. Heaven is a place where there are so many streets that you, know, you have to get the address of somebody to go find them. Uh, heaven is a place of neighborhoods and fences and things like that. And when the Bible speaks of home and speaks of the Father's house, the idea behind that is family. A house gives us the idea of everybody living together. It's the whole family living together. Now, I realize that mansion is a good word, and the old commentators stick with that, and that's fine with me. We'll continue to sing, I have a mansion over the hilltop, that's fine. 
But let's think for just a minute how the disciples would have understood what Jesus said. Jesus was speaking of an intimate place. He speaks of going home and going to be with the Father and going to the Father's house. Now, there isn't anything in the Greek word that's translated in our King James Version as mansions that insists that it must be translated as separate dwelling places. Now, you look at, at the culture of Jesus' time, how would the disciples naturally interpret what he said? He said, actually, there are many abodes. That's what the word translates into literally. There are many abodes or there are many dwelling places. So there are many abodes. And in those days, families were very close-knit. Families stuck together. They stayed together. They weren't an upwardly mobile society like we have today. And so many of the people would spend their whole lives in one area living in the same house. Many times, children would leave the home to get married, and then they would come back and they would live in the same house, especially those in wealthy families. So uh, the married children then, they would have their own children, and their children would come home to live. Oh, we're starting to get crowded here now. So what they would do is they would add on to the house. They would make more room so that everybody could live in the same house. And this might very well be the picture that Jesus gave them, that they were going to the father's house. And of course, this father is extremely wealthy. He has a mansion with plenty of rooms in order to accommodate everybody so that all of them can live in close intimacy with the father. I'm not going to quarrel with anybody that looks at that differently. If you have a different interpretation, that's fine. Just keep in mind that heaven is a home. The Father is there, and returning to the Father is going home. And that's where you feel the goodness of a loving Father who loves you. He is overjoyed to see you. He wants to have you there. So you don't need to think about being shipped out to a cabin that's, uh, that has a bad cell signal so that your map app doesn't work and it's hard to find. If Tabor makes it to heaven, uh, he'll have all the cell towers working just right and you'll be able to find the place where you live. So when you go through those pearly gates, you'll know where you are. It's not going to be a strange place to you. Can you imagine that? A place that you've never been before, you've never seen before, you've just got a few things that the Bible says about it, and yet when the doors open, they swing open, and you step through from this life into the next, it's home. It's the comfort of home. You feel like you belong there because you do, because that is your house too. God has prepared a home for you. Now, one more thought before we go today. I mean, I think hopefully you can stick around to hear a little bit more about heaven. What about home and family? Well, there's another interesting term that's used in the Old Testament about going home to heaven and being with family. Now, we return to Abraham for just a moment and, and his death. In Genesis 25, verse 8, it says, Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Abraham was gathered to his people. Well, that doesn't mean that he got buried in the family cemetery. Oh, he did. He was buried in the cave of Machpelah that he purchased to uh, bury Sarah, his wife. But that's not what it's talking about. Similarly, when Isaac died in Genesis 35, verse 29, it says he was gathered to his people. Genesis 49, verse 33, Jacob died and he was gathered to his people. Well, where did they go? They went to the place of the family of God. 
Listen to Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to spirits of just men made perfect. So who is your family and who are your people? They are the just. They're those who have been made perfect by the blood of Christ. All of them are your family members. And because all of them are perfect, we can all live together in the same house. And we can live there without fighting and killing each other. And I thought that I might add that because living in the same house with your relatives forever may not seem like a heaven that you want to have any part of. I mean, there is a reason that I live 2,300 miles away from my home, by the way. So, but you, you don't have a problem like that in the Father's house. Everybody is perfect there, even, even, uh, even, even as your mother-in-law who thinks she is. Everybody gets along just fine when you get to heaven. Now, look at this once more. Each of these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are gathered, were gathered to their people. Where is that? That's heaven. Who are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob representative of? They represent the chosen people of God. And this tells us that one of the things that happens immediately upon our death is that we go directly to heaven. There aren't any stopping places along the way. We don't visit other places when we die before we go. We go straight home with no delay. We're absent from the body, and the Scripture says we're at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 and 8 through 8, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now the Romanists, of course, teach that purgatory is the first stopping place. And so they must have in their minds that Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and they must have thought that he meant a torture chamber where he's going to burn their impurities out or he's going to make them lie on a bed of nails until they've experienced enough pain that they can resume their journey. Is that what Jesus did? No, to the thief on the cross, he said, When? Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And if there's anybody that needed a little bit of extra torture, it might have been him because he had no chance to get anything beat out of him before he resumed his journey to heaven. No way he's good enough to get into heaven. And folks, there is no purgatory. Believers go straight into the presence of God. I had a man just ask me this week. He said, do you believe? He's dying and he's, he's, he's on his deathbed now. And he said, do you believe in purgatory? I said, no, I don't believe in purgatory. You believe in Jesus Christ. You're going straight to heaven when you die. Why? Because you don't have to get anything beat out of you. Jesus had it beat out of him. And it's his righteousness that enables us to get to heaven. So we don't worry about another stopping place. When we get ready, when we die, we hit the carpool lane. We go straight to heaven. We don't have to pack our bags for extra days on the road. You don't need anything because the portal of death opens up into the Father's house. One last comment and we're through. There are many who teach that in the Old Testament times that when men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, that they went to the underworld and they were kept there in a holding state until Christ was crucified. And then during the three days that Jesus was in the tomb, Jesus went to that place and he got all of them out and he led them out and he took them into heaven. Now, as I said, there's a lot of misinformation out there 
People in the Old Testament went straight to heaven just like Christians do today when they die. Do you know why? Because the Bible teaches that Jesus is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. The death of Jesus Christ was so sure that there was no need for anybody to wait to see if it's going to happen. The physical thing didn't have to be done because God had promised before the world ever was ever created that those who believe in him would be in heaven with him. And there's no problem with waiting on this thing to happen. They went straight in to heaven. And that's the promise that God gives us. That when you die, no waiting, you close your eyes in death. I can't snap that finger. Try that one. You are right in the presence of God. Immediately in the presence of God. So they went to the Father's house. The Father took them home. He brought them all in. He gives them a place to live. And he's not waiting to see how many there are. Oh, he has a house that's neither too small or is it too large. He has exactly the number of rooms that are needed. He knows who's coming home. And so when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he meant all of you are coming. I'll make sure all of you are there. Trust me, believe me. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then they ask, where are you going? How do we get there? And Jesus provided that answer. Jesus saith unto him, that is to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Do you believe that? No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. And if you believe him, I'll see you in heaven. And I hope for sure that all of you believe it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for the place that is prepared for us. Oh, we thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We are so undeserving. We are, we are sinners that don't deserve anything but wrath. We haven't done anything that's good, nothing that's pleasing to you, nothing that would merit our salvation in a home in a place called heaven. But Lord, by your righteousness, by your goodness that you give to us by faith in you, you've made us worthy to receive this wonderful home in heaven. I thank you, Lord, that you prepared that for us. We look forward to it. And I pray that Christians would, would keep this thought on our mind at all times. If we just think about heaven, if we, if we have heaven on our heart all the time and keep that in the forefront of our minds, the troubles and sorrows of life just melt away, knowing that we're just waiting for a short time until you come again to receive us unto yourself. Lord, speak to hearts today. I pray for that person who doesn't know you as Savior. I pray, Lord, you'd open up the way of salvation. Even as you've said here in that sixth verse, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray, Lord, you'd open someone's heart to that. And then for some Christian today that has troubles, sorrows, uh, cares of life or weighting them down, Lord, Jesus spoke to the disciples that were in that very condition. No nothing could have been worse that could happen to them than to think that the Savior they had their confidence in, the one who said he was a king, the one who said he would establish a kingdom here, all that time that they spent with him, and now he tells them that he's going to die. They loved him, and nobody could be more sorrowful than to hear that news. So Jesus knew they needed spirits lifted. So today, Father, I pray that you would lift the hearts of those who are sorrowing. Help us to see 
We're going home to heaven. And there we'll see you and all the other things that you prepared for those who love you. Thank you, Lord, for this. Bless us as we sing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus didn't say, well, if you're going to go to heaven to be with me, then you better get busy right now doing all the good things that you can possibly do. Start, start living a good life. Clean yourself up. Um, show me some good works, and that'll help you to get into heaven. Now, this, this verse tells us we can't bring anything to him. We don't bring anything to him but a broken, contrite heart. We don't bring anything to him but a heart that says, I can't be what I need to be. There's no way that I can live righteously enough to get into heaven, not into that perfect place. I'm not perfect, I can't go. And that teaches us to rely only upon the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace. And that means you can't do anything. Grace is not earned. You can't earn grace. There's no such thing as an earned grace. It's by the grace of God. It's by the righteousness that Christ gives to us by faith. So if you don't know Christ today, I encourage you, if you want to go to heaven, get that part straight. That if you're going, it's all because of him, nothing because of you. And again, I, I do pray that for those with troubled hearts today, that you see heaven is such a wonderful place. All the troubles that you go through are nothing compared to what you'll have there. You've got to believe that. You've got to live that. And if you do, you can go through anything. You can live through anything that you experience here. God gives us the grace for that too if we know him as Savior. One more verse of our songs. God's spoken to you in some way. Uh, we have men in the back that would love to talk to you. I will, whatever. We don't want you to go away without knowing Christ and without comfort in your heart. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org